Thank you, Howard. Before we flip it on, um, hang on one sec, Philip. Am I on? Sorta. No. Now am I? No. Now am I? No. Hello. <laughs> Want some volume? Um, well, how about now? No. So, how y'all doing? <laughs> you know. Uh, we need doctors. There are three heart attacks down here on the front left and four with uh, noise-induced hearing loss. Um, <clears throat> yeah, good morning. I hope you all are well. If you need a lesson, raise your hand and we'll pass them out. I got an interesting... Uh, uh, letter uh, uh, this week. I've gotten, I think we counted like two or three thousand emails over the three days after our, our uh, trial completed in the Vioxx case and uh, a few hundred phone calls, which uh, if any of y'all are in those, sorry, I'm still trying to get through them. And, um, um, but I, I, people are handing me also letters. I've gotten uh, some really nice, wonderful letters and, and emails, and I've gotten some threatening me and my children and my wife and all of this kind of stuff too. Oh, it's it's bizarre. But the ones that crack me up most are the people who write me never dreaming I would answer them. And I got one of those last week. Um, um, I was going through my stack of stuff Friday morning. I got one from a fella named uh, uh, Connolly was his last name, and he's with... Uh, uh, um, a charter school company that runs charter schools called the Mosaica Institute up in New York. And he wrote me a letter that was a little bit tart. It was, uh, I find it uh, intriguing that you, uh, as have oft been quoted in the media, your immediate response to the verdict of the jury was that God had worked powerfully these last six weeks. He says, I hear that from you, I hear that from politicians, I hear that from athletes, and I just wonder how y'all can justify that in your brain when Katrina has blown through and caused so much devastation. I guess God worked powerfully there as well, and yet you think in your little temporal time and space, he cares about you and how much money you make. I wrote him back. I bet he never dreamed he was going to get a letter from me. This is the draft before my office put it into proper English. <laughs> Dear Mr. Connolly, thank you for your letter about our Vioxx win. You bring up a disturbing issue which philosophers and theologians have debated for ages. Why and how could God do something so focused and individual as helping a lawyer win a case while a hurricane, an act of God in legal terminology, blows away happiness and life for so many. No theologian or philosopher has answered similar questions so convincingly as to put the questions to rest. Still, many have found answers that on a personal level seem adequate if not fully satisfactory. I fall into that last category. I would love to have an answer for all who have such questions or cynicisms. Unfortunately, I have only the answers that make sense to me. Um, since you took, it's up there, time to write me, 
I will gladly tell you where I am on these issues and why I exclaimed God has moved powerfully in the last six weeks. There are several aspects to my worldview that evokes such responses from me. First, I believe there is a God who is personal, not some supercomputer, but a real sentient being and moral. I believe that this God made mankind in His image, not in the sense that God has hands and feet, but in the sense that we are personal and moral beings as well. The biblical creation account teaches this, but adds something more. We were made to be in a utopia with perfect fellowship with our Creator, but sin enters the picture and changes everything. With sin, mankind loses Eden and the world as well. Oh, mankind, hopefully they fix this. With sin, mankind loses Eden. And the world, as well as man, is under a curse. We're told that man will live by the sweat of his brow among the thorns and thistles instead of in a natural paradise. This is what theologians refer to as the fallen world. It is the reason I see great pain and disease resulting from the natural processes of our world. The disasters like Katrina are validation to me that we indeed live in a fallen world. He's not done. Whoops. So where is God? My belief is that He rescues us from the personal fall out of our sin through an atoning sacrifice of an innocent in our stead. If He wants to write me back, I'll tell Him all about Jesus. His rescue from the fallen world with its tragedies is not always physical. The rain still falls on the just and the unjust. Misery abounds in this world. The promise for me is that there will come a point where God will come as deliverer for the world itself as well. Meanwhile, the responsibility for me is to use my time, energy, and resources in ways that help further God's redemptive causes. Micah, an Old Testament prophet, wrote this question some 2,500 years ago. What does the... And I think this guy may be Jewish, and it's not polite with a Jew to spell out Lord, so you don't put the vowel in there. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I believe that is true. That is my effort as a lawyer. In our trial, I truly believe justice was done in the midst of an inherently unjust world of sin and suffering. That caused my unplanned outcry that God has moved powerfully in the last six weeks. As an aside, I did return to Houston, whoops, I'm not good at this, where we are working fervently now to help those whose lives were broken in pieces by the devastation of Katrina. When we are able to bring hope and a smile as well as a future to those devastated, my cry remains the same. God is moving powerfully in the midst of this suffering as well. I'm not sure you wanted a real response from me, but here it is anyway. I don't claim it to be a persuasive answer that would satisfy anyone but me, but it is what was behind my outcry. I wish you the best. I got on the internet and read of the Mosaica Foundation. It is an impressive effort to better the world for many. And I applaud your work. Sincerely, Mark Lanier. Yeah, I don't know. But I figure it gives God a chance to to maybe move powerfully through his life. And it's useful here not only because it's actually a rehash of my last week's Sunday school in chapter 1, 
So it's kind of a nice little review, at least a part of chapter 1. But we're talking about a letter as we finish 1 Timothy. A letter written not by me or Mr. Connolly, but a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. This is a letter that was written, as we discussed last week, somewhere in the 63 to 67 year time period. That's after the end of the book of Acts. This is a time period where Paul had left his Roman imprisonment, probably gone to Crete, dropped off Titus, headed over to uh, uh, Colossae and maybe Ephesus, gone over to Nicopolis, which is on the western coast of Greece, and uh, was wintering there waiting for Titus to come to him. While there, and during this time period, wrote First and Second Timothy. The outline we looked at briefly last week, greetings and instructions for Timothy's work. That was chapter 1, which we covered. This week, God willing, we'll cover the instructions on worship, the instructions on overseers and deacons, and the instructions on Timothy's role as a minister. Let's begin with the instructions on worship. Now, I grew up in the Church of Christ. In the Church of Christ, we had very specific worship forms. I used to preach in the Church of Christ. There was a time where I got in some serious trouble because I was preaching at a church in League City. And I was preaching the Sunday morning sermon. And I had been placed in charge of the entire Sunday service in a sense. And we were taking communion. And while we were taking communion, the church sang a communion hymn. Okay? Well, that Sunday night had another preacher. And I was on my way back to Lubbock at the time. And uh, that Sunday night, the preacher, I found out, blasted our service and made everyone repent. Because we had sung a song while taking communion. You didn't know that was going to send you to hell, did you? (laughs) I didn't either. And I don't think he was right. But he had been brought up, the fellow preaching on my heels that Sunday night had been brought up, where worship is exactly A, B, C, D, and you don't mix it, and you don't change it, and you don't do it any differently. Please understand, I'm not saying that applies to all churches of Christ, because I was a Church of Christ preacher who was up there doing the singing while we were taking communion. Every Church of Christ is very different. But this fella in this Church of Christ in that day was very strong about it. If you go to different churches, you can find some churches worship out of a liturgy that's written, maybe the Book of Common Prayer if you're Episcopalian. If you've got a Catholic background, you've got to be familiar with liturgies within the Catholic Church because they are uh, uh, there as well. Um, there are other... The Church of Christ I went to had its own liturgy, but it was different every week. That was one over at the Bering Drive Church of Christ where Edward Fudge, who fills in for me sometimes, uh, uh, is an elder. And, and so different churches have different ways of worshiping in different forms. I have a chance on occasion, not very often, but on occasion, to go to predominantly black churches to preach. I love that. You want to go somewhere where it is fun to preach because they will amen you, okay? <laughs> you all sit out there and, and give some response and I'll get some nods. Amen. amen. Thank <laughs> you. Okay? Uh, but I'm telling you, it's like for someone like me who feeds off energy, it's just like cranking the tail on the monkey and he just starts jumping. Okay? We have different worship forms in different places. I've been in charismatic churches before where if you're not 
dancing and jumping over pews, you, 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 may, you, you just aren't even there, it seems. And they wonder what's wrong with you. Um, I've been in churches where you've got to kneel at certain places and times. And if you don't, it it's just doesn't fit in. I've been in churches where everybody raises their hands when they sing or pray. I've been in churches where if you do that, you get kicked out. I've been in churches where a woman got called down because she had makeup on. I've been in churches that have all sorts of things. And so it's fun and interesting for me to go ahead and say, well, let's see what the Bible says on this. Because Timothy is a letter written to Timothy and it's got some instructions and teachings on worship. Some of which have been misconstrued over the ages and others which have not. So let's look at the instructions on worship. We're trying to figure out where the Bible and what the Bible has to say. That's a Bible. Unfortunately, it's open to Psalm 23 because that's the picture I got off the internet. We don't open yours to Psalm 23. It won't help you this morning. We're in 1 Timothy, okay? In 1 Timothy, you will not find in the Bible what we would call the Book of Common Prayer. You won't find a written out instruction how to guide for worship. Okay? It's, it's, it's not in the Bible. Now, the Book of Common Prayer is a wonderful tool of worship. I love it. I love the Catholic liturgy in so many ways because it's, it's the result of a lot of godly people putting together Scripture and other things which come together in a way, you know, it, it, but, but, but the, the structure of it is not in Scripture. Scripture doesn't say, here's what you do. You start out with this, and then you go to this, and then you put in the Lord's Prayer, and then you do this, then you have confession. That instruction manual is not in there. There's not a, a blueprint. See, that's a car. I couldn't find a blueprint for worship, so I just grabbed a blueprint. But you can't find a blueprint. I could say I was going to be careful with this. But then I wouldn't want to be accused of tooting my horn. So you'll quickly get tired of the car puns. I won't dodge any more of them. We can hardly afford it. So, um, with that, we... <laughs> but there's no blueprint. Okay, there's not a blueprint design in Scripture. Scripture talks about a number of different things that happen in worship. But not in the sense of, here's the way you are supposed to do it. We can find the church in the New Testament doing various things. What can we find them do? We can find them singing. Singing is scriptural. Paul says in Colossians, Paul says in Ephesians, to sing to one another. Paul says to sing hymns and songs, spiritual songs. Paul says to sing uh, uh, psalms to each other. So singing is something that happens in worship, but we're not told, here's how many to sing. Start with one, put three in front of the sermon, have one at the end so people can walk out to it. Okay, It's not in the Bible, that's the way we do it because it seems to work best. We have Dick Hill here as a worship leader. Because his job is to figure out how to best facilitate our worship within the opportunities that are here. So singing is one aspect of worship. And we'll stick that up in the corner. There's something else that's talked about as, as occurring in worship in the New Testament. It's teaching or preaching. Okay? 
Now, it doesn't say it's supposed to be 30 minutes long. It's supposed to have three main points, an introduction and a conclusion, and at the end you offer an invitation. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible just recognizes that there are people who are gifted with a word from the Lord, and when we come together to worship, it's an appropriate thing to do to have teaching. So we've got singing and teaching. There's a third thing that's appropriate in worship that the Bible sets out. The Bible sets out communion. And communion is something, you know, Paul stayed behind in Corinth because he wanted to be there on the first day of the week when they were going to take communion. Jesus says, when you gather together in my name, do this also in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is an appropriate part of worship as well. Some churches do it. uh, uh, The Church of Christ does it every week with the idea that you better do it every week. We offer it weekly here at this church, though as a corporate body, we don't do it weekly here. We do it more like quarterly. Okay? Some churches believe you do it every day. You can go to a Catholic service and you can take Mass or you, you can, can take the, the Lord's Supper, Communion, on a much more regular basis than just on Sundays. And there's biblical authority for that too. Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. Okay? It was at a Passover before Good Friday. So that wasn't Sunday. All right, But communion is another aspect of worship. There's a fourth aspect of worship. It's praying. Praying is something we do in corporate worship. Paul will talk about it here in 1 Timothy as well. So praying is a fourth. Now there's a fifth thing we do in worship that's talked about in the Bible. Anybody want to guess it? Giving. That's a part of worship in the New Testament church. We see it by example though. All of these are what we see by example. There's nowhere an exact blueprint that says you take these five things and you do them in a certain order and that's going to equal worship. Fair? All right, so with that as background, let's look at what Timothy says in chapter 2 on worship. Timothy starts out and Paul says, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. That's chapter 2, verse 1. Prayers. Now, he uses a bunch of different words here for praying. All four of those words are what we would consider praying, but it's worth taking a moment and looking at the emphasis he's got. Requests. I urge that requests be made. Requests are special needs, specific needs. When Howard gets up here and says, you know, we've got a need for this and we've got a need for that. You know, Sandy's got a callback interview on Monday. We need to be praying specifically for that. Or we've got, you know, uh, 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 the bar horse have some friends here from New Orleans who, who are trying to figure out, I guess, how to put their lives together or where they're going to do it or what they're going to do. Those are specific requests. All of the Katrina victims. We need to be praying specifically for them. That's an appropriate thing to do. All right? So requests means specific needs. Paul then says prayers. Now, prayers is just the general needs. You know, we all need each day our daily bread. We all need to be forgiven of our sins. We all need to forgive those who sin against us. We can go back and see within the Lord's Prayer a lot of good general areas of prayer. And it's appropriate to pray generally as well as specifically. We teach our children at night to pray specifically. You know, God bless... uh, I like them to say Daddy first. Daddy and the rest of the family. God... No... See, there there are specifics, but there are generalities. We teach our kids to pray in both. 
Don't just pray general prayers. Lord, you know the thoughts and wishes and needs of my heart and life. Take care of them. Thank you. See you later. Okay? No. This is a real conversation with the Almighty God. I love the book of Micah, which the fellow was speaking on this morning. Micah uses the phrase, not just Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, but Lord Almighty, like 20 times in that short book. Because that's who He is. He's an Almighty Lord. Okay? So, we pray to Him specifically. We pray to Him for general. And then there's a third one, intercession. What does that mean? Intercession means for others. We intercede on others' behalf. If Tom has a problem, he comes to me and says, Mark, would you pray for this need I have or this problem I've got or this issue I've got? I say, absolutely, Tom, would you pray for me because this is mine. That's why we have smaller focus areas too. That's why it's important you be in some type of a smaller focus group. This is a wonderful class. I love this class. But if this is the only source of fellowship you've got, you're depriving yourself. You need to be in a smaller group where you've got people that you can ask to pray for specific needs you may have. That may be sometimes your family unit. But most husbands and wives, as much as I'd like to say we are gloriously transparent and my wife knows 100% of everything about me, that's wrong. She does not. That's one of the reasons we're happily married. There are aspects where I'd love her to know more about me, but I've got some fears, doubts, things that I don't as readily share with her as I might. But I've got some friends that I can more readily share those with. And I'm not, I'm not saying let's alienate marriage. I want to grow in that. But I am saying recognize and focus on the fact there are aspects of your life that you need someone you can share with who can pray for you and intercede with you in ways. And that's what it is. And the final word, Thanksgiving, what does that mean? Well, I couldn't come up with anything other than Thanksgiving. Because we all know what that means. Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Be great. An attitude of gratitude. Okay, if I can be rhyming. Um, uh, you know, that's another aspect of prayer. And Paul says to do this for everyone, Paul adds the authorities and governing people as well. Now that's interesting to me while Paul's writing it. Because while Paul's writing it, you know, we've got a situation right now where, you know, we've got a lot of people. I don't know if you watch The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, but he's taking to task the president and a number of others for the Katrina response. And if you read my emails or talk to me, I'll take them to task too in some ways. Because I don't think the response has been perfect, but it's not just been the president. It's been the governor of Louisiana and Mississippi. It's been mayor. You know, everybody's struggling. The response has not been perfect. There's room to kick it up a notch. Okay? So you can find for me someone who's not going to say, I do not believe that our, our president is the second coming of the Almighty. He's got his mistakes and shortcomings. Okay? I'll go back to the president before him, Bill Clinton. He had his shortcomings and problems as well. I can go back to the president in front of him. In fact, I can count presidents all the way back to the one I was born under. And that was Kennedy. And they all had their problems and shortcomings. But I got news for you. We need to be praying for them, whether we like them or not. And we ought to also be thankful because they're a heck of a lot better than the emperor at the time Paul's writing this. His name was Nero. Let me tell you a little bit about Nero. Nero was a murderer. Hey, he rises to power because his mother 
marries the, the current Caesar, Claudius, that's right, that's who it was. His mother marries the current, her, the current Caesar. Her name was Agrippino, I believe. She marries Claudius, okay? And then manages, mysteriously, once her... First she gets Nero adopted by Claudius. And then she gets Nero set ahead of Claudius's natural son in the order of succession. And once that's done, she goes ahead and poisons Claudius... So in comes Nero as emperor uh, at the young age of 16 or 17, around 54 A.D. Well, ultimately, one of the things Nero's got to do is get rid of his mom. So he kills her. Now, at first he tries it nicely. He tries to poison her three different times. That never works. Oh, he created a a, a bed where the ceiling above it was collapsing. But... She must have been a light sleeper because that didn't do her in. He had a boat where the boat was built to destroy in the Bay of Naples. She was a good swimmer. The boat destroyed. She swam to shore. (laughs) So finally, Nero has no choice but to get some guards to go club her to death. This is the same guy who supposedly fiddled while Rome burned. We know that's not true. They didn't have fiddles then, but he was at least fiddling around. Okay? And decides he's going to blame it on Christians. This is the guy ultimately responsible for the martyrdom of Paul. This is the guy who would light his garden parties by hoisting Christians up on on poles and lighting them as human torches. And Paul says to pray for him. This is a guy who was so boastful and self-absorbed that he would, he, would, he would have command performances where he would sing. The command was, you had to come. And you couldn't leave till he was done. And he would stand up there and sing with his lyre. And he had a pot belly. He, he had pockmarked face. He was not just, you know, Ricky Martin up there singing with all the women swooning. In fact, some historians tell us people would pretend to die in the audience so they'd be taken out. There is another historian who says, because he would go on and on. I mean, he'd be like singing all 39 verses of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald or something. And there were women who gave childbirth during his performance but couldn't leave because they'd be killed. This was not a friend. And Paul says to pray for him. So we've got leaders that actually, good, bad, or indifferent in our minds, they're a lot better than Paul's. And Paul's saying pray for Nero, so we ought to be praying for ours. Okay? Oh, he was a pervert too. But that's uh, uh, for an adult-only class. Um, what's the point? The point is, Paul says, be this kind of person, be this type of fellowship that prays and, and seeks specific needs, but seeks general needs and all of this. And what will happen is you live a peaceful and quiet life in godliness and holiness. Now, I put an email in our lesson. Do you have a lesson? I got this email. Let me see. I put it in a footnote. I think it made it. I love this email. A boat docked in a tiny Mexican village. An American tourist complimented the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took him to catch them. Not very long, answered the Mexican. Then why didn't you stay out longer and catch more? 
asked the American. The Mexican explained his small catch was sufficient to meet his needs and those of his family. The American said, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? He said, well, I sleep late, I fish a little, play with my children, take a siesta with my wife. In the evenings, I go into the village to see my friends, have a few drinks, play the guitar, and sing a few songs. I have a full life. Then the American interrupted. I have an MBA from Harvard, and I can help you. You should start by fishing longer every day. You can sell the extra fish you catch. With the extra revenue, you buy a bigger boat. With the extra money the larger boat will bring, you buy a second one and a third one and so on until you have an entire fleet of trawlers. Instead of selling your fish to a middleman, you can then negotiate directly with the processing plants and maybe even open your own plant. You can leave this little village, move to Mexico City, move to L.A., even New York City. From there, you can direct your huge enterprise. Mexican says, how long would that take? American says, ah, 20, 25 years maybe. Mexican says, after that? American says, oh, after that, that's when it really gets interesting. When your business gets really big, you start selling stocks, you make millions. Mexican said, millions, really? What about after that? American says, well, after that, you're going to be able to retire, live in a tiny village near the coast, sleep late, play with your kids, catch a few fish, take a siesta with your wife, and spend your evenings drinking and enjoying your friends. Sometimes we have already what we want, okay? We live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness, and people start watching, and it's a chain. It's got a chain effect. You pray. You let peace and godliness rule in your life, and others are going to notice. And they're going to say, what is it about you that's different? Keith Green has this song. Um, people stop me and say, what is it that that makes me want to be the way you are. And Keith Green says, well, I just stop and tell him it's Jesus and what he's done in my life. I had a young lawyer meet me at a seminar where I was speaking. He came up to me. His name was Mike. He said, when I grow up, I want to be like you. I looked at him and I said, really? He says, yes. I want to be wealthy. I want to be well-known. I want to be the best trial lawyer in the world. I said, you don't want to be like me. He said, what do you mean? I said, what I want is to be able to come to church on Sunday and teach, to fight to have time with my family, to enjoy my kids, and to live a quiet and safe life. He says, that's garbage, because you're this lawyer over here doing all these things. I said, nah, that's just what I have to do to kind of pay for everything else. But And I enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. I love what I do for a living. I'm thankful for it. I, I, but, but it's I, truly, I got into that because I couldn't preach in the Church of Christ because I didn't believe the theology and I'd have been fired every six months when they figured out what I really believed. <laughs> and I was set to preach at a Church of Christ. I'd taken the job. I was set to be a Church of Christ preacher when my hometown preacher pulled me aside and said, Lanier, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go out and preach and change the world. He said, no, you're going to go out and preach. One of two things is going to happen. I said, what? He said, either A, you're going to get fired every six months when they figure out what you believe, or B, you're going to have to compromise what you believe and keep it a secret. I said, ooh, what do I do? He said, go to law school. 
I promise you, I promise you. Ken Dye is his name. I'll give you his email address. You can ask him. He said, go to law school. He said, be sure you tithe your money. He said, and then there's not a church in the land that won't let you teach Sunday school and say anything you want as long as you're tithing. (laughs) Now, that's not true here. I have confines in which I can teach, okay? But that was the advice I got from my hometown preacher, and I love him to death, and uh, uh, I'm sure it was a little tongue-in-cheek. But I'm telling you that people will see, and, and, and that's what we want to be. That's, we want to be godly people. We want to show folks godliness. We want folks to look at us and say, you know, uh, 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 I, I'm interested. I'm interested. Why, why do you know? I had a lawyer come in and help us try this case. She is incredibly successful. Her name's Lisa Blue. She's written books on it. She's one of the most successful lawyers in the United States of America. She's won countless bazillion dollar verdicts. Her husband was the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of America. They are major accomplished people. And she said to me quietly and privately as the trial was over, I've been with you 20 hours a day for six weeks and you never yelled at anybody. In the most tense situations, you don't yell. Why? Have you figured out something that works better than yelling? I said, actually, no. Yelling works pretty good sometimes, but I'm really trying to grow gentleness in my life. God's put that on my heart. I want to be known as a gentle person, not a yeller. Because then you get old, and they're going to call you old yeller. (laughs) So Paul says, pray. Let peace and godliness come into you. Let it affect others. And he says, and what others are going to see is there's not just one God, but there's also just one mediator, his son, Jesus Christ. And there's no other options. If you want the peace in your life, there aren't other options. You're not going to find it in liquor. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in, in, in licentious living. Oh, all of those things can feel good for a little bit of time. But they do not bring the deep abiding peace that comes from knowing the one God. There's only one mediator of that peace. And it isn't liquor, and it isn't drugs, and it isn't money, and it isn't popularity, and it isn't power. The only thing that mediates between you and God, and the peace of God, is the Lord Jesus Christ dying for your sins. And there's nothing else. And that's what Paul says. So Paul says, I want in your prayer people to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, does that mean literally God's striking down our worship if our hands are down here? No. But it also means if it's in your heart to hold your hands out in prayer, don't feel inhibited because of somebody you're going to hit in the nose. Just keep it in a little bit, okay? Lift up holy hands in prayer. Now Paul gets to the tough stuff. He starts talking about women. In this passage, these verses cause a lot of people trouble. So I'm going to do the right thing and go through it really fast. (laughs) Women dress modestly with good deeds. That's what you need to be looking at. Have you seen the commercial for, I think it may be, it's some computer something. Um... It's got the the Eric Clapton song playing. It's late in the evening. 
She's put, looking for something to wear or whatever the line is. Putting on, and the, the, the guy is out there waiting on his wife who's holding up this dress and this dress. and this. Uh, she's wondering what clothes to wear. And he just keeps looping that line. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She's wondering what... And finally she says, knock it off out there. You know? Okay. What you need to do, women and men, is dress modestly with good deeds. Now, I went on the Internet to find some pictures I could put up here, just available on the Internet, showing the difference between women dressing modestly and not. But I decided not to do that, because we all know the difference. I've had to explain the difference a few times to my young daughters, because, uh, you know, Gracie finally looked at me and said, Dad, I get the difference, but you can't buy clothes like that. And I said, oh, yes, you can. Let's go looking together. Let's find something that dad thinks is modest that you think is okay to wear to school. And I got to tell you, that three hours I spent buying that pair of socks was... (laughs) No. That three hours I spent that afternoon with my 16-year-old daughter, I will carry to the grave with me because it was so special and precious. Now... The way Paul writes it, he doesn't want them wearing their hair all braided up with gold and all these things. But Paul's, we we lose focus if we think that means I can't wear gold earrings and I can't braid my hair. Because Paul's talking about dressing modestly and that's what it was then. It's something different today. But we know what it is and we need to do that. Women dress modestly with good deeds. Gracie and, and my daughters, I've just had to explain to them that men are visual. And, and, and even in a worship service, the way women dress can capture men's eyes. It can. That's exactly right, isn't it? No, it, it can. And Gracie looked at me and she said, Dad, then men are sickos. <laughs> and Marcy's amening that one. And so I, I noticed Perry's not here this morning. I don't know about that. But anyway, his dad is. And, uh, um, you know, and, and men's, I'm, I'm just, that's the way it is. You dress modestly. Gracie said, Dad, we don't dress immodestly because we're trying to catch guys' eyes. We're trying to outdress all the other girls. I said, okay, well then, that's sicko. So we're all sick. Now, in the midst of our sickness, would you please dress modestly? Because I'm getting tired of hitting all the boys watching you. Dress modestly. Learn in quietness and submission. Um, um, and, And actually... We're all to learn in quietness and submission in some ways. Paul, has, uh, uh, Paul says it in this sense for the women. He does not want the women to assert authority over men. There are lots of options about what this means. And if this were more than biblical literacy, if this were interpreting troublesome passages of the Bible, we'd spend three weeks on this. And when we were done, you'd walk out believing what you already believe now, but knowing a whole lot more about other ideas. So... Uh, look at it. I've laid a few options and questions out in the questionnaire, but I'm not going to spend time over them this morning. Um, women will be saved through childbearing. Huh, what does that mean? Well, Paul's not all of a sudden getting rid of his old concept that, that you're saved by faith. Uh, women are saved through childbearing. Men are too. It was through childbearing Jesus the Messiah came. And that's my understanding of the passage. Lots of people have different ideas, but look at them. Then Paul gets into the area of church structure and and authority. He talks about overseers. We consider those in this church pastors. 
uh, churches of the Church of Christ where the Riddles and I grew up, we considered that elders, and we'd have an eldership. And uh, um, uh, Paul goes through qualifications of them. They're to be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, that could mean a number of things. Some people think that means they could not have had their spouse die or, or divorce and then remarry. Some people think that that means no polygamist um, because this is written at a time where polygamy was valid. Some people think that means they must be married. Other people think that means they must be faithful to their wife and not have one wife and a few other pseudo-wives on the side. Um, um, Paul says there to be a husband of one wife. There to be temperate. That means uh, uh, not drunk. Um, self-controlled. There to be respectable. There to be hospitable. Able to teach. They're to be gentle. They're not to be quarrelsome. They're not to be a lover of money. They're supposed to be able to manage their own family. Paul says if they can't manage their own family, how are they going to manage the family of God? They're not supposed to be a recent convert. They need to have history and their roots grown deep into the Word. They're supposed to have a good reputation outside in the world. Then Paul talks about deacons, which are the servants or the serving people, the people who are tending to, to uh, more of the nitty-gritty of the, the service of the church. And these uh, uh, have some differences if you go through the list, but they're also much the same. And you can read through it. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you what they are. Paul says, bottom line is, you know how important it is to be physically fit and how if you're physically fit, you're able to leave a, lead a much more vibrant life. He says, I want you to be spiritually fit because that'll really transform who you are. And you're spiritually fit, not just in your prayers, not just in the way you dress, not just in the way you act, not just in who your leaders are, but it goes even further. It goes in, Timothy, how you treat other people. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to treat other people uh, uh, special. I know you're young, Timothy, but don't let people despise your youth. You still use your talents. And when you come across old men, you treat them like your father. When you come across older women, you treat them with respect like your mother. When you come across younger women, you treat them with respect like your sisters. When you come across younger men, you treat them with respect like your brothers. Now, that's not just within the church. That's outside the church, too. You treat people that way. We do not want to be people with a reputation for, uh, uh, you know, okay, old people, get out of my way. Or young women, um, look out, I'm going to hit on you. Young men, um, if you're a woman, I'm going to hit on you. If you're a man, I may just hit you. Okay? That's not what we need to be doing. What we need to be known for is treating people in love and respect. And that's regardless of age. That's regardless of skin color. That's regardless of how much money they got or what, how much power they got or what kind of job they've got. I mean, bottom line is, the bottom line is, we're either all the same in God's eyes or those that are lesser in the world's eyes are greater than His. Okay? So we got to be real careful. Because our natural response is to treat those lesser in the world's eyes lesser. And we're either all the same or they're more important to God than we are. Because the first will be last and the last will be first. Okay? So, now, this is unique. You may not know this. There was a list of widows at that church. This is God's heart. God says He's a father to the fatherless. He's a husband to the widow. 
Okay? There's a list of widows. Paul says, on that list of widows, I love this, because this is just practical advice for that church. He says, just put women over 60 on the list. If they're under 60 and you just start taking care of them as a church, then they're just going to give... They, the, the temptation will be for them to give themselves over to being idle, busy body gossips. Okay? So he says, you let the women under 60 be women under 60, but if they're widows over 60 and you need to take care of them as a church, do it. But he also says, before the church takes care of them, the families ought to take care of them. All right? Um, my mom's alive. My mom's a widow. I have two sisters. It is my sister's responsibility to take care of my mother. <laughs> and if they don't, then, then I have to. And if I don't, then the church does. No. Um, families to take care of family. But the church steps in when family's not doing it. The church is not in a position to just say, hey, the family's not doing it. Well, it's their own fault. We take care of our families first, but the church is involved and the church takes care too. And that's what Paul's saying. We're almost done. Paul does add a few things here. He says, it's important for you to pay your pastors. That's not a bad thing. The pastor's not supposed to be a lover of money, so it shouldn't be that expensive. But you want him to be able to focus on what he does as a pastor. Okay? You're not supposed to show any favoritism. Timothy says, as you're doing all this stuff and you're dealing with all these people... You're dealing with widows. You're helping widows out. You're helping families out. Don't show any favoritism. You love everyone the same because that's God's love. If you love anybody differently with favoritism, then you're not doing what God wants you doing. Okay? So no favoritism. Tells Timothy, take some medicine for his stomach. Wine. See, now the Baptist version of that, we translate that wine as medicine. But, uh, no, we've got medicines. There's nothing wrong with medicine uh, in the right time, in the right place. That's biblical. This is stuff God's given us to help us through this fallen world. Um, so that's another topic for another day. But Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach and careful with your illness that I know you've got. And he says, uh, make sure people aren't loving money because the love of money is the root of all evil. doesn't say money is the root of all evil. But the love of money is the root of all evil. So with that, we're going to take our points from home, far home. And we're going to bring them from Paul. Paul tells Timothy to do the following. To pursue righteousness. To pursue godliness. To pursue faith. To pursue love. To pursue endurance. Just keep on going. Even when it seems like you can't go another step. If you can't go another step, go a half a step. If you can't go another foot, go another 11 inches. If you can't do that, 10, 9, 8. You just keep going. Because God is going with you and he'll see you through it. Before long, you'll look back and say, what a wonderful God I serve. Pursue gentleness and fight the fight. He says it again, echoing chapter 1. Fight the fight. None of this stuff's easy. It doesn't come naturally. You don't have to teach your children how to disobey. They come out knowing that. You've got to teach them how to obey. All right, you fight the fight. Instead of our closing prayer, I want to bless God with you with the words Paul uses at the end of this in his doxology. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to God be honor and might forever. Amen?
Amen. I'll see you next Sunday.